SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Oh, it's insidious. They take a flick you loved as a kid and add youth and diversity. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is SequelCast. They are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is sequel cast, and your hosts are best that I inform you that the show will now begin. So here on SequelCast 2, we have a very special guest. Nathan Rabin has been writing about pop culture for well over a decade. He's the author of such books as Weird Al the Book. My Year of Flops, and You Know Me But You Don't Like Me, Fish, Insane Clown Posse, and My Misadventures with Two of Music's Misaligned Tribes. His new books just out are The Weird According to Al, a son-by-son look at Weird Al's Ovur, and Postal, a look at the films and video games co-written with Brock Wilbur. You can visit his blog, Nathan's Happy Place, at NathanRaven.com, or support him over at Patreon.com, Nathan Raven's Happy Place. Nathan, welcome to SequelCast. Thank you, thank you, and I think I've uh, technically been writing about popular culture full time for twenty three years. Oh, okay. uh, okay. nineteen ninety seven. <laughs> I've been I've been an author for for a little over ten years, uh, but I've I been see. doing this since nineteen ninety seven. So I'm a very old grizzled man with a with a wizard like grizzly. <laughs> So I don't want I don't want to anybody to get uh, you know uh, any misconceptions about me being young uh, and not a Methuselah like figure. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, with me, I have my co-host, uh, Thrasher. Hello, everybody. And Alex. Hey, hey, how we doing? Good. Um, I think I'll start off here with a question I got from your co-author on Postal, Brock Wilbur. Uh, he, he made a good point. He said, uh, Nathan, you've been making a career out of loving things, or at least writing about things that everyone agrees is bad. I think it's interesting you never really got into Uva until this point. Why did you decide to take that deep dive? into the uh, interesting world of Uwe Boll. Uh, well, I think as I've been kind of fascinated by Uwe Boll uh, as soon as I learn of his existence, uh, there are certain moments that are burned indelibly into your mind. Uh, and I remember uh, going to the screening room in Chicago and uh, a little movie called Alone in the Dark. Uh, Christian <laughs> Slater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the wonderful thing about that is it has this uh, opening uh, crawl, you know, like Star Wars. <laughs> insane in the reverse and it just goes on and on and on and you just start laughing uproariously both because of the content and then because it goes on so very very long and then <laughs> the thing that, that really makes it wonderful and, and you know burns it in your mind is that the scroll doesn't make the movie any more coherent it doesn't actually explain anything it's sort of like uh, I, I compared it to the movie cats where the movie cat is literally like, I'm Scrimbledum the uh, toilet cat. Here's what I do. That's all they do. They just introduce themselves and then they say what they do and who they are. And the entire film, I find myself thinking, who are these Who are these mofos and what do they do? Uh, so I remember, and then I, I discovered who Uwe Boll was, that he was a six foot eight tall German maniac. And he, uh, again, I, I would love his uh, audio commentaries. I feel like that's where a lot of uh, his, his true medium 
you know, because he would just say these incredibly outrageous things and these insulting things, and he would like make fun of Yui Owen Wilson's Yui <laughs> <Huey> Wilson. <laughs> He's the black sheep of the Wilson tribe. Uh, he would like make fun of Owen Wilson's like suicide attempt. It's like, oh, maybe you uh, attempt suicide because you make such bad films. But like, he wrote Royal Tenenbaums. You know, <laughs> you made Alone in the Dark. But I thought he was just because there's something kind of tragic about him and, and very mm. sad. Because he so wants to be respected and he so wants people to think that he's an artist and that he's capable of, of great art. Um, and it just breaks his heart that people don't see him that way. Yeah. So, again, there's just these incredible contradictions where he's literally a doctor. You know, he is a doctorate at, I believe, you know, English in, in, in Germany. You know, he's, he's this businessman who's like worked in this, this financial um, black magic to get all these crazy movies financed. And yet he's this incredible vulgarian, you know, he, he's, he's a, a figure, physical figure and a visceral figure in, in part because he's a boxer, you know, that's another crazy part of his legend is that he got so angry that people on the internet said mean things about him. And like, yeah, that, that's what people on the internet do. Uh, they challenge them all to a boxing match, uh, having the sizable advantage of being a, uh, a very good boxer, like a Golden Gloves level of boxer. And his uh, competitors being pasty film critics. Uh, so yeah, so there were all, and then and then also, um, you know, part of the reason why uh, I wrote this book was because I was approached after I got laid off from the Dissolve. I was approached by a video game book publisher, uh, and that's my family uh, coming in in the background there. It'll be loud and uh, and cantankerous. Um, so yeah, and then you know this, I was approached by a publisher of um, books about video games. And I thought, Postal, like, that is his masterpiece. Mm. <laughs> I can use that phrase a little bit loosely. I think that's his most personal film. That's kind of his manifesto. That's where you see his uh, bleak, uh, yet uh, darkly humorous take on life in its purest form. The thing that always struck me about UA Bowles uh, getting into literal boxing matches with Maybe. his critics that has the makings for an amazing movie, and I am shocked mm. no one, especially him, has not turned that into a film. It actually has been. Uh, oh, it has been. It, it, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. documentary, uh, Raging yeah. Bull. Yeah, there's a documentary called Raging Bull that's pretty entertaining. Uh, there are kind of two documentaries about uh, Uwe Bull, uh, neither of which is entirely satisfying. Uh, sort of the second, hey, sweetheart, how you doing? Uh, the, second, <laughs> the second one is more uh, satisfying because it's more of like a, a complete take on who he is. There's uh, some really great stuff about sort of the end of his career where mm. he's making three movies simultaneously with the exact same cast, and they were wildly different. <laughs> we're like you know blubberella uh, and you know like it like a, a world war ii like again it's just uh, towards the end of his career things got really really crazy uh so yeah that um that uh was the reason why i wanted to write about him because he's just so crazy and so much uh, larger than life and i felt like i could make a case for him and hopefully make people feel his pain uh and feel sorry for him and that would be a worthwhile literature and again i feel like sort of what i've done over the course of my career is articulate the worth and the value of things that we're told have no worth and are completely valueless or in the case of Weirdo Yankovic, explain why somebody who people already like and already respect is so much more of an artist uh, than people realize. And his contributions are so much more staggering uh, and impressive uh, than you might imagine. 
Cool. Alex, you mentioned you were getting a kick out of reading the postal book last night. What what sort of what sort of takeaway you took from that? Oh, yeah, I couldn't get too far into it. But of course, um, just the introduction, it really gave me uh, a feeling for the time and the place and like the the video game controversies and the fear mongering. Like I remember um, I'd always heard about Postal had such a like enormous reputation. And of course, like perverse irony of that stems from, you know, like the Postal Union trying to sue the company. (laughs) (laughs) And also, it's kind of like the Tipper Gore hearings on the rock and roll censorship thing, you know what I mean? Like, no one had heard of, like, the Mentors or Twisted Sister till all this stuff happened. And I remember, I think the thing with Postal is that we had, we were like a Mac family, because back in the day, that we were either a Mac house <laughs> or a PC house. And I think we had a bloodbath at something, what was it? A bloodbath at Red Falls. That was, like, one of the hot take shooter games, I remember. Huh. Like, Wolfenstein. So yeah, I actually yeah. just started playing Postal last night on um, on the Steam app. And it's a whole lot of bloody fun, and I love <laughs> like the the gleeful way that like you can just mow down pedestrians and parades and open crowds and stuff like that, and the the sound bites of like oh my god I'm bleeding, and it's it's so so wonderfully garishly terrific. Um, but yeah, no, the book was it was funny too because you know like I grew up with. Um, my family's, uh, my cousins grew up uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, so we always were the ones trying, I was always trying to like, corrupt my cousin with uh, R-rated <laughs> violent video games, you know. So yeah, it took me to that, and it was um, it was a lot of fun to read, and I actually started playing Postal, and yeah, it was strange, surreal kind of experience. Yeah, and it was awesome. My, uh, my co-author Brock, he actually got to drive to Arizona and meet Vincdesi and kind God. of interact about his madness run with, with Vincdesi's. And he got amazing, amazing stuff. And it has a real kind of new journalism, Hunter S. Thompson feel to yeah. it. And I was jealous. I was <laughs> jealous reading his parts of the book. He was like, man, I would love to have gone to Canada and eaten in Yui Bull's restaurant and like seen his mansion and met his dogs. Uh, but I didn't have time. You know, and I didn't have the money and I didn't have the opportunity. So I like talked to him for several hours while he was cleaning up after an Easter egg hunt. Um, <laughs> and he would like pause uh, occasionally to like bark something in German at somebody in his house. Uh, so yeah, I get a lot out of that. But yeah, I was, I was jealous because it felt like he got a, a richer and fuller experience, and the book is much better for it. Uh, but yeah, that was a very ballsy thing to do uh, to go because yeah, Vince does he seems like a pretty terrible human being, like kind of a, a fascinatingly terrible and a charismatically terrible uh, and an ostentatiously terrible human being, uh, but uh, a, a pretty bad person all the same. And, and yeah, that's part of it. I feel like make a case for Yui Bull. Uh, Brock uh, illustrates Desi's awfulness uh, in, in kind of a deeper and, and more fascinating way than uh, has been uh, recorded before. What I couldn't believe, and, and uh, Uwe Boll mentioned this on the commentary for Postal, and in fact, uh, for uh, my book that came out recently, the films of Uwe Boll, Volume 1, the video game movies, I got an import German DVD player and imported the director's cut of Postal. Wow. Um, and uh, if you want a copy, I can send it to you, but um, I can rip it or something. But, but anyhow, sounds great. Yeah, but uh, on the commentary, it mentions that uh, Vince Desi in house they wrote their own screenplay for Postal. They were oh, so yeah. they have such a misguided view of uh, uh, y- you know the Second Coming of Christ as their video game series Postal that uh, they wrote this Taxi Driver dark kind of screenplay, and uh, Brock goes into that a bit in his part in the book, and I'm like. Who do these people think they are? I mean, like, they, like, <laughs> the, the postal game is fine, but like when uh, you're talking about playing the game, Alex, I was playing it uh, uh, a few months ago when I was writing my book, and 
I beat level one. I killed everyone on the screen. You can still hear the 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 ah, the screamings in the background. It turns out you have to hit like the O button on the keyboard to end the level. What yeah, video game does that? What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's an element of sadism in every part of running with scissors, uh, and part of that is being sadistic to the to the uh, people playing the game, uh, and, and the people playing the game being masochistic enough to want to play a game that just kind of messes with your head relentlessly. And just kind of like shoves it in the ugliness and the dysfunction of the world. And it's funny, we started this book in Jesus 2015. Uh, oh, wow. And a wonderful man, <laughs> erudite, uh, mild mannered man named Barack Obama was president. It's kind of like I'm, I've been uh, I'm working on the expanded version of the Word According to Al book now, uh, where I write about all of his TV shows and his movie in addition to all of his songs. Uh, and I'm writing about the fifth season of Comedy Bang Bang, uh, oh, which I yeah. really, really love. Nice. Uh, I'm like, why does it seem like you know, sort of an artifact of an innocent era? And it went off the air on December 2016. <laughs> and then roughly <laughs> one month later, Donald Trump assumed office. And I feel like things have just been on a downward path ever since then. And when we started writing this book, it looks comparatively idyllic uh, compared to where you're now. And there's just stuff like, I mean, the fact that the uh, postal movie prominently involves a virus, uh, a deadly <laughs> virus being spread mm -hmm. for malicious reasons, the end of the world, uh, the elite of the United States working covertly with our ostensible enemy to engineer the end of the world. Like, there are so many aspects that, like, yeah, they use, still use payphones <laughs> in Postal, which is one of the things that, like, most dates it is 2007, is that, like, nobody has a cellular telephone. Uh, but in other ways, it just feels so, like, ugh, this is a gross, grubby, like, is civilization even worth saving? I think is, is the dark, fundamental question uh, behind Postal, and the answer is probably not. <laughs> and again, I... I I, I'd like us to get through this pandemic for the sake of my children, for the sake of my family. But I got to admit, our country and our civilization kind of crappy, kind of, you know, <laughs> they don't necessarily deserve a utopia necessarily these days. That's what that's what I'm, I've uh, that's my, my grizzled, uh, difficult assumption. Uh, speaking of utopia, you've been uh, drowning yourself in Weird Al with all your uh, entries at Nathan's Happy Place and then and then the book, which is a more kind of edited uh, uh, focus version with the with the lovely illustrations in there. I think that really adds so much. Yeah, and um, Weird Al actually copy edited that. Uh, so that, <laughs> he wrote an introduction that's mostly complaining about my grammar and uh -huh. punctuation, but I'm like, you copy edit my book for free and you have five Grammys. You're allowed to say whatever you want about me. <laughs> Uh, and it, it was done with affection. Uh, but yeah, and that, that was part of it. It was like kind of uh, 2017 when I was starting my website, Nathan Rubin's Happy Place. I'm like, I need a really big project to kind of immerse me in, uh, mm. find off the horrible things going on. Um, and I saw this as a bit of a sequel uh, to tie this all in to Weird Al the Book, which is the uh, coffee table book that I wrote with Al uh, earlier in the decade. And I really liked that, but it was a little impersonal. And it was about 12,000 words. Um, and that doesn't really give you a lot of time to go into any kind of depth. You know, it was very kind of like the broad strokes of the story. I think I made a, a, a nice case for him. Um, I felt like I didn't do enough and I didn't go deep enough. And this, I think, is kind of a, um, the going into it with the sort of psychotic level of obsession, uh, of obsessiveness. Um, and yeah, it, it, was, it was a journey. And it also changed considerably over time. 
I mean, like, I really benefited from being able to, uh, I really benefited from having three years to sort of gather ideas and, and information and know about things. Like, for example, uh, one thing I kind of learned only very, very, very deep in the process was uh, that um, there's a line in uh, Another One Rides the Bus, one of Al's very first really songs. Mm. It was, uh, I haven't seen a crowd like, I haven't been in a crowd like that since I went to see The Who. And at the time, I thought, like, oh, he's just referencing a rock group and a concert that would be very popular and a lot of people would be at. Um, and then I realized, or I learned, rather, uh, I saw an article saying the 40th anniversary of the Fatal Who Stampede. <laughs> and what mm. happened was there was an infamous uh, thing where there was a Who concert and there was a stampede and people were literally being stomped to death with feet. Like, 11 people died horrible deaths. Because there wasn't, like, ticketed seeking, there just let a bunch of people in one place. So people died. Like, it was this horrible, horrible tragedy. And he's glibly referencing that as being like, well, I had a bad bus ride, and it was like that fatal who stampede. Uh, so that I found was fascinating, and something I only discovered, like, very, very, very deep into the journey. Yeah, that, that incident with the who, as I recall, part of the... Part of the the supposed instigation of it was that their their management or the or the or the venue they were playing at had hired some branch of the Hell's Angels <laughs> on site backstage security. So, somehow that never works out. It's almost like mm. hire people on meth. Uh, who've been drinking whiskey all day uh, to maintain order. Uh, that's almost a counterproductive uh, endeavor, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, they kind of, like, embody, like, a, they literally embody disorder. I mean, that's, like, they're <laughs> Hell's Angels. It's in their name, for Christ's sake. Like, what good could come from that? Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, and they were also the, the lovely people at Altamont. Uh, oh, yeah. I think yeah, it's a person who, again, within the within the, the uh, cliche take on the 60s, they stabbed a dude and killed a 1960s uh, quixotic dream at the same time. I think, like, the Rolling Stones did the Ultima concert as, like, a response to Woodstock, right? They're like, oh, we can do our own rock fantasy thing, and it will be free, not, like, unlike Woodstock, where you probably had to pay however much money, I think, was part of it. And I think another one of the reasons they got the Hell's Angels, I think, was to cut costs down, so they didn't actually have to have <laughs> legitimate... <laughs> It's kind of they didn't have a lot of money, uh, the Rolling Stones. And if I remember correctly, the, the Grateful Dead were there. And they had the, they were supposed to perform, and they had the good fucking uh, sense to get in a helicopter and go way the hell away. Yeah. Uh, from the, and, and to cite another sort of observation that I made very, very late into the, uh, into the process, uh, I was watching the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, uh, as one does for my column, uh, My World of Flops, which I've been doing for 13 years now on, on my website. Uh, and the very first episode they have uh the brady family led by mike brady an architect turned song and dance man uh and their first is like some uh, like baby face combined with donna summer's love to love you uh, and you might know love to love you as the song where according to the urban legend donna summer actually masturbated while she was recording it and that's how it got so incredibly lascivious so incredibly sexual 
so uh, kind of extreme. So to literally have Mike Brady Architect be singing this song uh, mm. with his family, like with his like eight-year-old daughter and his ten-year-old daughter, and then I'm like, oh, this like epitomizes sort of the the craziness of uh, variety show medleys, because I watched a fair amount of variety shows in the 1970s, and they're all terrible, and they all have so many medleys. And the thing about medleys on variety uh, shows is that they destroy the songs that they're supposed to be honoring. They kind of turn them all into one another, and the combinations are so tacky and so gauche. And you kind of really like, oh, this is kind of the primordial stew out of which uh, Apple's polka medleys come from. Because they do the same thing, but they do it in intentionally ridiculous fashion. You know, let's combine Hey Jude with this, you know, sleazy Berlin song. Uh, so yeah, that was another kind of observation that I made very, very late in the game. And, and not, you know, not the most, uh, you know, not going to win a good Peabody for that. But, you know, you have... A thousand twelve hundred observations like that, and you have a book that I think is, is very interesting and incisive, and uh, will lead you to respect and, and understand Al in a level you never even uh, imagined before. You'll get your PhD in Al studies uh, just from reading this book. Well, that's it's... part of the the beauty of of Weird Al with his polka medleys and his parodies. It it very often uh, uplifts the music on some level. When, uh, whenever I think of Closer by Nine Inch Nails, uh. I think of the Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> oh, medley yeah. version. And well, there are lots of and like there are lo like lots of one hit wonders. Their music is preserved because Weird Al keeps bringing it back. Oh, and that's one of the great things about uh, the polka medley is, again, like when you spend three years, three and a half years contemplating somebody's oeuvre and such intense things, you come to understand so many different themes, one of which is what makes the polka so hilarious is that there's always an incredibly sexual song, <laughs> incredibly inappropriate for Weird Al to be singing, or it was like Papa Don't Preach, like that is the perfect song. Mm. Because it is so serious and so like an important message song in its original incarnation takes itself so seriously. And then for Al to be, you know, saying, Papa, don't preach, uh, it's just so ridiculous uh, and so goofy. And again, there's something just inherently silly about the polka medley. Uh, and the more serious the song, the more sexual the song, the funnier it is. I mean, it's fun to hear, you know, Gangnam style uh, in a vocal medley, but you don't need to, like, take the piss out of that song. You don't need to, you know, undercut its portentousness. Uh, it's already a silly song. It's already a novelty. And that's another reason why, you know, with Al's uh, songs, I feel like when he's uh, parodying a song that's already kind of a novelty song, like um, Lump or... Uh, Bare Naked Ladies, uh, one week. Uh, it starts off at a disadvantage. Like he, It generally works better if it's something like a, a police song, because the police take themselves so seriously. Um, so yeah, to transform one of their songs from you know being about the pain of existence to I want to sell you a nice suit uh, is inherently funny, and it's inherently funny in partial because Al is very serious when he sings the song. You know, so that, that juxtaposition of the very, very silly and then the very, very somber and serious, uh, I think is one of the things that makes his music so great and so enduring, particularly with polkas and particularly with parodies. It's funny yeah. because the, um, the, I, the, and the like best polka medley, I feel, is the 90s one with, you know, uh, bold butterfly wings closer and, oh. you know, all these other, mm. like, you know, serious, grungy songs. And it's like. It's like you're hearing, like, you know, Smashing Pumpkins cover at, like, a bar mitzvah or something like that. <laughs> well, it's a perfect musical time capsule of whatever whatever era of pop the album coincides with. 
Okay. Oh, and I feel like, you know, for uh, Weird Al fans, we kind of need him to summarize pop music for us because uh, we stop paying attention after a while. Mm. And I feel like one of the, the unfortunate things about him not having released an album in six years, maybe not releasing an album ever again, just kind of the world has changed and the business has changed, is I need a polka medley. Uh, <laughs> and I need, you know, for him to make all of these songs uh, that I've missed or that I've kind of heard in snatches, you know, while I'm in lifts, uh, I need to put it into Weird Al form uh, and have it all make sense for me by making it even more ridiculous uh, than it was before. And yeah, for me, I think my favorite polka medley is the first one because it combines a lot of very, very serious songs like My Generation or Hey Joe. Uh, again, like Hey Joe is great because they just add a bunch of wacky sound effects, <laughs> like good sound, sound effects. But yeah, suddenly like a very somber song about you know violence and and, and revenge and, and how it accomplishes nothing becomes a very silly kind of cartoon uh, slapstick song uh about a wacky dude uh and and some gunfire fantastic people can uh can get your latest books at postal uh and the weird according to al every weird on Quebec album obsessively analyzed by the co-author of weird al the book off of uh, Amazon.com and uh, wherever you like to purchase books. Um, one, also, one last directly from me. Oh, uh, that, oh, okay. Either, either through my website, uh, Nathan Raven's Happy Place. Uh, the sure. URL is NathanRaven.com. N-A-T-H-N-R-A-V-A-N.com. You can also just PayPal me twenty bucks at NathanRaven uh, at sbcglobal.net. And I'll send you a copy ASAP because I like to undercut Amazon because they're a little bit evil. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll cut out that plug then. That's fine. Um, but one one uh, last question sort of came to mind. We're going to put this interview in an episode with uh, talking about the recent Kevin Smith film that popped up on Amazon Prime, uh, Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. Uh, what do you think about the trend of all these kind of oldy moldy franchises coming back like 20-something, 20-odd years later? to do a sequel, but everyone's kind of like old and fat and tired. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I have a column for um, PCM Backlot called uh, The Fractured Mirror, and I really love writing it. Uh, it's a column of movies about movies, which is one of my favorite subgenres. Uh, a lot of them are really, really bad, but I just enjoy the genre as a whole. Like, you know, I can get a lot out of one that's really quite stupid. <laughs> that said, I recently covered Jane Silent Bob, uh, strikes back for the column and I thought it was absolutely dreadful uh, it felt so dated it felt like all of the jokes were just gay panic jokes uh, or they were in jokes about the VSQ universe and the crazy thing about uh, Kevin Smith is I feel like he's such a likable man and he mm. just seems sweetheart of a guy and he just seems so self-deprecating and fun and like he'd be enormous fun to hang out and smoke weed with and yet his movies are so self-indulgent and kind of insufferable and kind of mean-spirited a lot of times. And I was thinking just by, and I read uh, him saying, hey, we're, we're totally making another version of this movie that nobody liked. Um, and then saying that, like, oh, this is going to be beat for beat. It's going to be like Psycho. It's just going to be the exact same movie again. And I'm like, I know for your fans, that's like a promise. Um, for me, it's a threat. 
And I'm going to, unless somebody, and I've got a column on my website where you can pay me $100, and I will see a movie of your choice. Unless you pay me $100 to see Jay and Silent Bob's reboot, which I totally, you totally can, and I invite you to do so, ain't no way in hell uh, I'm writing about that movie. And yeah, again, I think it just doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. You'll see stuff like Murphy Brown coming back, uh, like Coach, I think, where there was going to be a reboot. Like, I know nostalgia is nice, but even stuff that I enjoy, I don't necessarily watch the second time around. When Arrested Development came back, I think I watched the fourth season because I was paid to. And I was like, ooh, this is kind of killing my love for Arrested Development. Uh, the Mr. Show reboot uh, with Bob and David, I think I made it 15 minutes in the first episode. I'm like, oh, this is fine, but I have no need to further taint or cloud my memories uh, with this new thing. So, yeah, I feel like uh, it's powered by nostalgia and this desire for us to reclaim or recapture things from our childhood or our lessons. And a lot of times it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and you're taking something that, again, wasn't necessarily fresh or vital or essential in the first place and creating a more degraded version of it. It's like uh, Michael Keaton in Multiplicity. You know, every time hey. you do a copy, it gets dumber and dumber and dumber. And Jay and Silent Bob was pretty dumb to begin with uh i'd like to think you know that the, it left nowhere to go but up and that kevin was a little bit more enlightened a little more progressive uh, a little less uh, amused by gay panic jokes this time around but i i honestly don't know uh what what was your guys take on it uh i thought it was mediocre you know that the first half very much feels like a retread of, of the first but the second one kind of like clerks too uh, it, it tries to get serious and kind of weepy as if you watch Kevin Smith's YouTubes or some of his, his recent podcast stuff, as it, and some people are like this when they get older, they just cry a lot more yeah, and yeah. It, 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 it doesn't quite work. I, I think, uh, a movie that did the same sort of thing, but did a better job was American reunion, the fourth theatrical American pie film. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that's we, not all, a... we don't remember American Union. Very... <laughs> <laughs> that was by Bob Sun, wasn't it? Uh, Jesse, though? Uh, I, I believe you're right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, American <laughs> Reunion isn't How's great. that old man? I have a better artist than you know. <laughs> I also directed How High, so I'm definitely a great artist than you, Dad. <laughs> and the weird thing is, I actually feel like I kind of enjoy sort of the more dramedy side of Kevin Smith. I thought mm -hmm. Two was interesting. I thought Zack and Miri makes a porno. It was like a nice step forward. I thought Red State, the Michael Parks stuff, uh, was really yeah, interesting. Yeah, I thought I like a great performance. That had like a really great texture. But again, I and then there was also stuff like Tusk and uh, God the Dumb, the Elga Hosers. Yoga Hosers was fucking terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not like he actually like set out to make a movie that was terrible. Like, yeah, right. I feel like after how Red... little his audience would would take, you know. Yeah, I feel like after Red State, he kind of turned into this guy who was like intentionally just kind of just trolling his audiences, like with um, well, like with like you know Tusk is ridiculous and kind of admirable in a very wacky don't give a shit way but then with like something like yoga hosers he's almost just like i'm gonna make you sit through this because you're my fans almost like his children and johnny depp's children it's like yes, again, i'm, I'm gonna force feed my dog but like again there's just yeah. this is like a home movie you know mm -hmm, and make mm -hmm. your little home movie but don't expect people to pay 15 dollars and go to a theater in order to see it no then that's like this is ghoulies but even dumber <laughs> and even yeah more I hope you like all these, like, you know, crabby gremlins knockouts in the 1980s, but the worst of the bunch. 
It's like, come on, can't you at least be, like, Critters level? Like, yes, very. Uh, so I, I want to like Kevin Smith's stuff, and, and I find things to like about it. But there's also just stuff, again, stuff like Yoga Hosers or Tusk, where it's like, seriously, dude, come on, come well, on. Well, I also feel but like there's... even that, like, Michael Parks is very good in, in Tusk as well. Yeah, Unfortunately, yeah. Michael Parks is dead, so <laughs> he can't make uh, Kevin Smith's movies single-handedly much better anymore, uh, which is too bad. <laughs> And Johnny Depp, good lord, he's somebody like, yeah, no, no, no. and he's like wearing a silly hat, and Back. Like, again, I'm just uh, yeah, no, and it could have even like that even like ended with like a like a pop song from all of that. It's like, uh, come on, it's very and like I love my family. I wish that uh, I could could work with them beyond them being in the background of this podcast. Um, but yeah, there's something about asking people to pay money to see the selfing those are projects that you do with your family that uh, is is a little bit off putting. Sure. I mean, even the ghoulies went to college. Kevin Smith, I'm not so sure. But uh, <laughs> right. that's, that's <laughs> on, on, uh, on that note, Nathan, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Um, and we'll uh, yeah post the links in the show notes uh, from your website where people can get your books. Uh, any last things you want to say? No, no. I mean, I also have a podcast uh, called True. Oh, that's right. Where me and my co-host uh, Clint Worthington, we uh, go through the complete discographies of John Travolta and Nicolas Cage uh, in chronological order to discuss who is the better actor. Spoiler, it's clearly Nicolas Cage. <laughs> He's won almost every match-off. Like, looking ahead, it looks great for him and not great for John Travolta. But it's enormous fun. We've had a lot of great guests. Uh, Karina Longworth uh, was uh, the guest in our last episode. She was fantastic. And, yeah, a lot of fun movies to talk about. You know, Moonstruck and Raising Arizona are next We've got that. Re- uh, bo- 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 bo. We have Vampire's Kiss, which will be a really fun movie to see in this dark, dark, dark climate about a lunatic who thinks he has a horrible disease when he has no actual proof and then goes completely insane. And then Perfect, everybody's favorite sexy 1980s aerobics drama. He drinks Jack Benner as a Jen Wenner like figure. So that should be a lot of fun. And we've got a whole bunch of fun stuff. Uh, look for us at Travolta Cage. And we also got a Patreon. So, yep, that's the other. Uh, big thing that i'm doing now oh i have to ask uh have you have you considered covering uh any documentaries on travolta cage because the moment i heard the first episode i just in my head got a vision of you pairing the death of superman lives with with going clear Ooh, that is Ooh. Nice. I, I think going yeah. clear would be tough to posit as a john travolta uh, documentary but we're definitely going to do uh the death of superman you know that'll be a lot of fun to write about and i actually have seen it uh but i've got a lot and again there's just weird cool stuff in the store uh john travolta apparently did a uh did a harold pincher adaptation directed by robert altman what in the 1980s yeah uh, called basements uh he did a play called the dumb waiter uh so we're gonna be talking about that another movie called time to kill which is an it- a legitimate italian movie where Nicolas Cage plays an Italian soldier to World War II in Ethiopia. <laughs> Here's our two movies that I didn't necessarily know existed before, uh, but that I'll be talking with Brock uh, as our guest in an upcoming episode. So lots of cool, weird, interesting, you know, epic, uh, iconic movies, including Luke Who's Talking, all three of them, uh, mm-hmm. and then some fascinating, fascinating kind of detritus. Uh, like uh, there's a movie coming up called Firebirds, which was sort of Nicolas Cage's top gun, his sort of attempt to be like a cocky young man with a, with a mentor. So that'll be interesting. We've seen that before. But yeah, the Nicolas Cage as second-rate Tom Cruise, which you see a couple of times early in his career. Kind of an interesting uh, part of his career. But obviously, he's moved beyond. 
All right, fantastic. Can't wait. Uh, thanks, thanks so much, Nathan. We'll send you a link to the show once it once it goes up. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Have a great afternoon. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast Two, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. I watch those Marvel movies more than I watch Pornhub, and I come twice as hard doing it. And uh, Alex. Hey, 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 uh, Snoochie Boochies? Something like that, sure. And uh, <laughs> we are, yeah, we're talking about, you know, a long, long, long time ago in the sequel cast, we talked about the, uh, the U.S. Universe movies ending with the uh, Clerks 2, I think. And uh, Jane Silent Bob Strike Back was way back in 2001, so almost 20 years ago. And uh, Kevin Smith has gone back to the Silent Bob well, and this just popped up in Amazon Prime, so I thought this would be a fun opportunity to sort of uh, do a catch-up episode in an old series we talked about before. And um, the way this is was in theaters, I, I didn't have a chance to catch it, but it's kind of like what Kevin Smith has done for a lot of his recent things, where he goes on a nationwide tour, or I, I think beyond nationwide, I think he does Canada as well, but uh, he goes and runs out of theater, and then you have to pay, I don't know, something like, anywhere between 50 to $200 to get a ticket. And if you want your, your picture taken with them and stuff, you know, that's how it, it ends up costing more than it usually does. But you also get a, a live Q&A with him uh, on the show doing, uh, you know, doing a live podcast thing, which he then records and, and so forth. And uh, yeah, Jane Silent Bob reboot. When I heard the title, I was skeptical, but watching it, I have kind of mixed feelings. Um, what are some initial thoughts that, that you fellows have? Generally, generally, I found this very entertaining. It was self-indulgent in the way it, a good Kevin Smith film is self-indulgent. Um, I honestly don't know what you would make of this film if you didn't already enjoy uh, a certain amount of the man's work. The thing, the thing that hit me so hard, though, is early on in the film when uh, one of the characters explains flat out what a reboot is and how it works... And then the movie proceeds to pay off every one of the things he says has to be in a reboot. Yeah, that was a good um, that was a good bit of business. I think Jason Lee describes like what a reboot is versus a versus a remake, and that just kind of becomes like the like every like story beat and plot point throughout the movie. Um, I was oh, actually, very... I, I've got uh, I've got the 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 I believe I've got the quote here. Okay, you gonna read it? Well, not the full, not the full quote, but uh, studios have given up on new ideas entirely in favor of building multi-movie universes that breed brand loyalty, uh, brand loyal consumers from cradle to grave. So, if you like Harry Potter, Cashinicus, you're getting the ten fucking more. You like Fast and the Furious flicks? We're gonna drive that franchise into the ground. <laughs> yeah, I was, um, I was very, 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 um, I was reluctant uh, initially because I. Even though I like some of Kevin Smith's work, um, I just thought Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back was just, it was like just so stupid because there's usually this like level of like high art, low art, you know, on the Kevin Smith spectrum. And there was just none of like the like intellectual curiosity that makes his work funny there. So I was like, oh God, we're doing this. And I have to say, I was actually um, pleasantly surprised. There was a lot that I did enjoy about this movie. And, you know, it's just, it's stupid. It's supposed to be very stupid. It's very, it's like mission statement is that it's a dumb, funny movie um, with a lot of fun cameos and um, references throughout. 
And I had the chance to listen to the commentary for this. Uh, the the Blu-ray release did not have a commentary, but Kevin Smith instead just put one on YouTube, which is kind of a strange way to do it. But um, I think it's also available as an episode of his Smodcast podcast. And he mentioned, you know, for for several years now, he's been trying to make a Clerks 3. Um, in fact, that was supposed to be filming a few years ago, but then the uh, actor that played... Um, uh, Randall kind of dropped out at the last second, so they couldn't do it. And then he was trying to do Mallrats 2 as a movie and then as a Netflix show, and none of that ended up happening. Uh, and so he took a lot of those ideas from those scripts and put them in here. And I think... But, but it, it kind of works, because this in, in these James Allen Bob movies, it kind of smooshes together characters from all the different universes. And although in other viewist universe films you have passing references to other characters, I think in here you definitely see they all kind of play in the same sandbox more. Yeah, and I was, it was fun to see um, them kind of like wrap up the like the chasing Amy reference. I thought was a, a nice way to kind of um, kind of contextualize the 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 film with uh, Joy Lauren Adams and, and Ben Affleck revising their mm-hmm. characters. And um, the Chris Hemsworth cameo was especially entertaining. I thought that was pretty great. Well, you knew um, we were going to get somebody from the Marvel movies in here. I'm glad it was him. Uh, the other thing I like about the, the the reprise of Chasing Amy, that one that I love, it's, I love is the reversal where... Jay and Silent Bob getting the long-winded story rather than rather than delivering it, but two, you know, that's the um, that scene is the emotional core of the film, and when it comes down to it, chasing Amy is the emotional core of the Viewisk universe. Right, definitely. And many people still say Chasing Amy is their favorite film uh, of Kevin Smith's. I, you know, I, I wouldn't argue with that really. Uh, I also that Ben Affleck scene, which shocked me, was never meant to be in the movie. He was not, Kevin Smith and Ben Affleck hadn't talked for a decade for whatever reason, and uh, on on press for some movie Ben Affleck was doing, they were asking him about, are you going to be in Jane and Silent Bob reboot, which is filming right now, and Ben Affleck said, oh, Kevin Smith hasn't even called me. Kevin Smith (laughs) heard about this, texted Ben Affleck for the first time in a decade, and they were able to work something out where the scene, I mean, I think without that scene, this would be a much lesser movie, and you get, uh, you know, it's one of the more, you talk about high and low art, kind of more of like a high art scene, and it kind of special uh, spells out the, as you said, the emotional core of the movie. And in fact, that the actor that plays the uh, kid of Ben Affleck in that scene is Jason Mewes' real daughter. Oh, oh, I knew it was someone's kid. It had to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and if you in this film, you know, one of the main actors is uh. Harley was it Harley Quinn Smith? Is that her full name, really? That is uh, her full name. Oh boy, uh, <laughs> who is Kevin Smith's daughter? And in the beginning of Jane Silent Bob Strikes Back, it shows uh, Jane Silent Bob as babies in front of left by their parents in front of the clerk's uh, quick stop store, and one of those babies is played by Harley Quinn Smith. <laughs> okay, yeah, I like. Um, I, I do like the the Harley Quinn Smith business with um, uh, Jason Mewes actually having a. a actually having a kid and um that was good i like harley quinn smith um they introduced her i believe in tusk and then they revised the characters mm-hmm. in yoga hosers which is the well we won't get into that deep dive um but yeah no i think she's entertaining she's got a good screen presence and it just feels very she feels very at home in the in the view of skewiverse and um yeah that gave the movie a good drive and a kind of I kind of re re uh, 
you know, dated the characters in a very good way, I feel like, of, of Jay and Silent Bob. Well, she's completely believable as, as Jay's daughter. I, I think that's what helps. And she even has her own very own Silent Bob. I forget the character's name, but um, the, the deaf girl. Oh, let me uh, let me look that up. It is Trishel Edmund. Yes. As uh, Sopa Pia, which then <laughs> Jay calls her Soapy Penis. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, so I mean, I think this movie, it, it starts in, in sort of a similar way to Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, but instead of learning, you know, oh, Hollywood is going to make this big movie, we got to go get him, you know, the I mean, the budget of this is like, less than half of that of Jane Silent Bob Strikes Back, and yet uh, yeah. I, I don't think it feels any cheaper necessarily. I, I, I will say the cameos in here are more kind of actors from past Kevin Smith films. Like in Jane Silent Bob Strikes Back, you had Mark Hamill, you had Carrie Fisher, you had George Carlin. You had bigger names, and this you have... You do have Val Kilmer, but... Um, we'll, that was a su- pleasant surprise. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll, so, so we'll get there, but... Uh, how do you feel about uh, the way the adventure kind of starts with them getting arrested and going to court? Uh, I thought the court scene was pretty funny. Um, <laughs> the guy playing the lawyer from uh, another character from the US universe with, um, I forget the actor's name, he was in Tusk. Um, and the law and order business was uh, was pretty stupid and funny. The the whole back and forth with the judge where they're like, yeah, that movie like that movie sucked at sucked dick or like that movie sucked ass and dick or something like that. Um that that was pretty comical. And again, like the first shot we get is that there's the the uh quick stop and then right next to it is a chicken place called was it smoked cock? A cock smokers. <laughs> cock where, smokers. Yeah, yeah. It's it's both a like fried chicken franchise and a weed dispensary, but it turns out <laughs> they don't have a license for either. Of course they don't. <laughs> I have to say that that set of the quick stop is a remarkable piece of work because unlike all the other films that wasn't filmed at the quick stop, it was just built uh, from scratch in uh, New Orleans where they filmed this film. Oh, wow. It, it looks pretty close to me. I don't know. not sure why they weren't able to film in New Jersey, but... Interesting, huh? I, I can only assume that in New Jersey that location's not there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it could be, or certainly the, the price of filming in New Orleans is cheaper but it um you know that you have the character of, of dante is is back who always seems to pop up in these films in the first I, clerks films and he looks I pretty much the same feel really sorry for dante that he's still driving the same car and is still working at the same <laughs> yeah. quick stop yeah brian played by brian o'halloran and he does mention you know oh something like randall couldn't be here or something because uh, the actors you know oh, yeah having... he's like i don't know anything about randall's or something like that, like they're going to grill him on it or something. Yeah, and um, allegedly they're going to be doing Clerks 3, which has been on and off again for a while. I'm not, after Jane Silent Bob reboot, I'm not sure if you need a Clerks 3, but okay. Yeah. Uh, if they can get everyone on board, sure, why not? Um, but like you said, a lot of the material for that was repurposed here, so who knows how much of that movie's left, so to speak. Right, I think they were mentioning the original opening for Clerks 3 was the opening of this movie, which sort of makes sense. I mean, on where they go from there, I have no idea. But um, you, and so you have this setup. Oh, in Hollywood, they're doing Blunt Man and Chronic, and not only that, but um, Jane Silent Bob have lost the rights to the name uh, to their own names because they're owned by the studio. 
Well, that's one of the be- the best bits of the film is that um, Justin Long as Brandon St. Randy, uh, the same character he played in Zack and Miriam Make a Porno, who yep. shows up as their coin-appointed lawyer, they sign a document for him. That document gives Saban Films exclusive rights to their names. And so it begins with him being their code appointed lawyer and he gets them off. He gets them off the weed charge. And then the next case begins and Justin Long just walks to the other table and Mm. suddenly becomes the prosecuting attorney prosecuting Jay and silent Bob for illegal use of their own names. And the documents they just signed, they waived all rights to their own names to the, uh, and this is possibly the most metafictional scene in the film because there's a whole lengthy thing where Justin Long and the judge explain what Saban films is and how they're going to reboot Blunt Man and Chronic. Like, Wait, didn't they, didn't they do, do Power Rangers? Oh, they're a multimedia group now. They're branching out into all sorts of franchises. Oh, yeah, they have those multiple franchises combined into a Megazord. <laughs> that, was, that was good. And Saban films that distributed this film in the United States. Okay. So that's the reason for some of those. It's one of the 17 production company logos. Oh, it's a lot. I mean, yeah, they had to do a lot to get this thing funded. Um, And so much like the the last, the original film, Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, you know, they have to get to Hollywood in a certain amount of days to, uh, to get all this done. And I love how gleefully they call out every time there's going to be another plot beat that is the same as the plot beat in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. <laughs> and you get a payoff from Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back in that um, Jay's, you know, sort of a love interest in that film Justice, played by Shannon Elizabeth, who is one of the all-women group of diamond thieves. He also called her boo-boo kitty fuck, if memory serves. Um, yes. He actually uh, knocked her up and, and she had a child that he never knew about. And that becomes a central thrust to the film. And you get Jason Mewes to do some more dramatic acting, which uh, he's actually not too bad at. It's an interesting choice, but it's certainly not what I was expecting, uh, firing up this kind of a film. Well, weirdly enough, as an actor, he's, unlike virtually everyone else in this movie, he has matured over the past, what is it now, almost, uh, it's like 30 years since this since his character first appeared? Yeah. Uh, yeah, something like that. I think you're about right. Let me, uh, I'll, I'll pull it up just a minute here. I think, uh, oh, yeah. sorry. No, go on. Um, I mean, being yeah, in a Stephen Yeah, King like 94. Movie. So, I mean, that's not quite 30 years, but almost. Or several years at any rate. I mean, yeah, he was, and, uh, Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith were, you know, friends, uh, in real life, so to speak, right before they uh, did all the movies together. So they, and uh, apparently Jason Mewes put some of his own life in, in his, uh, in this script with Kevin Smith in that he didn't really have a father, uh, his, uh, wasn't sure if he could be a dad and all the other sort of business is kind of brings the emotional quotient up. And I, I, I like Shannon Elizabeth in this film as justice. She doesn't have a whole lot to do, but I think it, the scenes work well and you have the kind of the plot, the twist of, Oh, now she's a lesbian and, and all this stuff. Um, and, um, I think, uh, one thing is that like making the father and stuff, it was, it was just, it was the right amount of story to get you to take this character more seriously than you would have in the past. Cause you think that like, Oh, he's just the same thing that he's always been, but he's just older like that, I just don't think that would be enough to really get you to hang on to the movie as much as he would have. So I think just that was a nice dramatic pull to 
you know, to a good plot device to get you in there. Because if it was just more of the same, you know, crude weed stuff, it would just kind of wear thin after a while. So it, it was a good, you know, way to, you know, make the make the story a little more meaty. Well, it is it is great seeing him simultaneously trying to be a stoner icon while also trying to be a, a responsible parent to this to this this daughter he's only recently discovered. Like I I, I just love that whole that whole bit. You're 18, you can't be smoking weed. <laughs> and not knowing how strong edibles are. And yeah, just you, it's not his style. No. You don't know what a you don't know what a dildo is and all these things, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, that, that was good. I've got two dildos and a strap on. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I like what Harley Quinn Smith does with the characters. Make her be really tough in the beginning, but then it, she kind of softens up as it goes on, uh, as she learns more things or you learn more about her and her friends that they pick up. Because when they meet Justice, it's sort of at a at a weird time because Justice is gonna is going with uh, her wife on this trip, and uh, but when they hear when. Uh, Millennium Falcon, uh, their daughter, played by Harley Quinn Smith, hears that the Jane Silent Bob are going to Hollywood. You know, they draw knives on them and basically demand to to be taken. Yeah, I like that reference where he's like, he's like, what? Do all girls have like switchblades now? <laughs> <laughs> and then they make a point. They're like, actually, it's probably uh, kind of required that most women do have to carry knives these days. Um, I thought that was a good reference too commenting on the uh predatory male gaze and all that um which actually they they do get weaponized at one point because so jane's talking about their original they of course they don't have a car and they can't fly because it turns out they're (laughs) on the no fly list because of the events involving the clit in the in uh jane's on bob strike back and so they need they get a ride sharing app and there's this great bit we're like oh you need a credit card we don't have a credit card and then that angry guy is yelling (laughs) Oh, at yeah. the hotel booking agent. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to state my full name and credit card number really so loudly. Clearly, you can't <laughs> possibly mess this up. <laughs> that was brilliant. And the thing is, I bet that would work. I bet if yeah. you hung around a busy travel hub long enough, you would hear someone loudly yell their credit card number into a phone. Between getting ride, you know, setting up ride shares and booking hotels and flights and all that yeah i'm sure it would definitely most likely happen yeah, but late, late, but later on when they lose that car they need another one they're in the middle of nowhere in new orleans uh and so they're their whole they have this whole elaborate plan where they have attracted a pedophile with a creepy van and they're just going to steal his van and the and and the pedophile for reasons that are never explained is dressed like captain chaos from cannonball run <laughs> But does like you? You probably don't know Cannonball Run. <laughs> it's such a not, weird flourish. It, I was not expecting a Cannonball Run reference. I can say that much. <laughs> although apparently, so there's a whole bunch of like deleted scenes and alternate takes that play through the credits. Apparently, there's a whole deleted run where it turns out that character is not a pedophile. They're actually really big on Jesus, and this is how they try to rescue wayward girls. Oh no! But <laughs> they themselves are pretending to be pedophiles to rescue girls who might be in danger of of sexual assault, and it's, it's, I don't know. I'm not sure whether the movie is, is helped or hurt by having that scene excised and dumped into the credits. I think at that point yeah. they're just trying to hurry things along to the Chronicon part of the plot. That's true. They they have done everything they can to avoid getting there at this point. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, uh, 
Go the Fred Armis and rah, rah, Uber bit I thought was funny with the hater tots. It was a good gag. Yeah, well, I love that these like brats themed tater tots called hater tots, and that, and I love that that keeps coming back in different ways. <laughs> yeah, a lot of different ways. And he says, and then even even just like a throwaway line, he says like. You know, and and these were and who who liked these hater tots? Not not teenage girls, no white nationalist. And then that comes back in the KKK scene. Oh yeah, or they're oh, all it eating turns, it. It turns out that's their favorite snack is hater tots. Their favorite snack is hater tots. Oh. So it's and also that you have a KKK scene. I think is a big shout out to things like uh, like Porky's or the Blues, Blues Brothers, Brothers or all, all those eighties movies where you have a big KKK rally that gets uh, upended in comedic fashion. Well, there's there's some like any like classic buddy road movie. The, the movie sort of incorporates some of the best of, of that genre because the, the the best road movies aren't afraid to just stop the film to do a little bit in a location. And I, I feel like I feel like Jane Silent Bob Strike Back had trouble with that because clearly Kevin Smith wanted to do little bits in little locations, but kept trying to make the movie propel itself forward, and that muddled the pacing of that film. Here it works perfectly. It's just these nice little beats uh, that are sort of spaced uh, spaced wonderfully throughout the film. It's, it's kind of like Star Wars. Every seven minutes you get an action set piece. Here, every seven minutes you get a little you get a little sketch. Yeah, they stop at the restaurant. He, um, you know, reacquaints himself with his <laughs> uh, previous fling. Um, even uh, Silent Bob, <laughs> um, I guess. Uh, gets lucky at the restaurant there when he reveals that he's uh, looking for some vegan cuisine. Um, well, that touches on a, uh, a running, because that's what they, they touch on. Like, Silent Bob's biography is basically the same as Kevin Smith's biography. He oh, yeah. had a heart attack, he went vegan, is trying to live a super healthy lifestyle, and I love I love the way Jay, like, has a hard time dealing with his veganism. But there's a, there's a running gag in this film, and I wanted to, to know how you all felt about it, where every now and then... Bob pulls out a cell phone and just does all these little elaborate mm. happy taps. And then it's just one emoji that he shows people. How did you all feel about that running gag? I thought it was clever. I thought it was funny. It was because, you know, you kind of, I could see that like, you know, these characters would probably, that's probably all they could really do with a smartphone is go create emojis. Um, and it was a fun sight gag. And I think it's good. It's a good, it's a good device because I think Kevin Smith's um, mime performances as Silent Bob are usually pretty funny, and his facial expressions as he's doing it was always very comical. You know, he's just just kind of hammering away at his phone. So I, I thought it was cute. It, I, go oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So I mean, with that, I can see why they do it. You know, Silent Bob doesn't speak. They want to give him more to do. They want to do something to keep him updated. The gag with the emojis, I didn't mind as much. And you had some funny business with, uh, like, he says the eggplant emoji because he wants a vegan sandwich, and they think that means he wants to show his dick to the to the girl working behind the counter, uh, played by Kate Micucci. But um, but it's it's the sound effects and the the amount of time it takes for him to go do 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 just to do an emoji. I think that's the part that got on my nerves a little bit. For me, I loved it when it first appeared. It had diminishing returns. They use it, it a lot. But it was totally worth it at the end when in the Bluntman and Chronic scene, Val Kilmer as Bluntman does the exact same thing. Like when it came back there, <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought it was it was completely worth it. That was a good payoff, definitely. Yep. And uh, 
So, I mean, speaking of which, as they go there, you know, part of the, the group of uh, friends they pick up or, or friends of uh, Millennium from this online support group for people that don't have fathers, one of which is named Jihad, <laughs> is uh, Middle Eastern, and the other is uh, Sean Yu, who is allegedly recording a podcast the whole time using this omnidirectional, you know, compact microphone, just kind of whispering, kind of a silent Bob sort of performance, but that changes as we get to the end. Well, yeah. it's, so the thing, the thing with, with, with Sean Yu, so I realized by the time the climax was about to happen, it, it occurred to me, huh, something big should be happening here. So I guess one of the characters is going to have to like betray the others. Turns out I was right. It was Sean Yu who turns out mm. to not be a Chinese exchange student. She is in fact a Russian spy <laughs> wearing a cat suit, paying off a joke from earlier in the film, and that her podcast recorder is in fact a sonic disruptor, which she uses to disable everybody at Chronicon. Everybody except Sopapia, who is immune to sonic attacks because she is deaf. And that is a great that is a great payoff. Yeah, Weirdly enough, that whole climax was something originally from the Mallrats 2 script. Hmm. And the terrorists would have been Canadian instead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can see that. Um, that was a good, that was a good uh, payoff at the end with, um, with Sean Yu and um, her rap responding to the Sonic Disruptor because she's being deaf. And it also kind of sets up that, you know, that um, Harley Quinn and um, her friend there are, are, you know, capable of you know, being these slacker superheroes as Jay and Silent Bob are kind of passing the torch on to the next generation, so to speak. So it was a really good um, narrative device to wrap it all around with. Well, it's 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 like what was said when re when reboots were explained. You get the same exact story, but there's more diversity, and there's and there's more diversity. There's more women, and they're all really really young, so that you could continue the franchise on for decades <laughs> using the new cast. And like it's per it's perfectly summed up, like in that scene, and they all get to be heroes in their own right. Although that that be this is this is the weird like irony. Uh, so having having seen this and having seen the new Star Wars trilogy. I feel like this movie does a better job passing the torch onto a new generation <laughs> of, of heroes than the new Star Wars films. That I, is a weird right. thing to feel, but that's how I feel. Yeah. This movie's willing to commit, I think, in a way the new Star Wars films work. They always were like, eh, you know, there's these new people, but there's the old people too. You like them, right? So, well, it doesn't arbitrarily kill off any of the old characters. That too, yeah. or, or undo such actions to great degree in uh, some of the films, but yeah. I, I, I suppose that's the <clears> one real surprise. I, I surprised we didn't get a death fake out with one of the, with one of the established characters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is pretty funny that out of 2019, you know, we have, um, you know, the view of Skewiverse kind of outdoes Star Wars and tying its expanded universe together. <laughs> and that um, also to hear where we have Avengers Endgame, a new Star Wars film, um, you know, it's South Korean Pong Juno movie wins best picture and cleans up at the at the award circuit. That was that was great. That was brilliant. I love it. Definitely. Um, um, now, when when the you know kind of last part of the film takes place at Chronicon, I have not been to San Diego Comic Con. I don't know if either of you gentlemen have, but I've been to a lot of comic conventions, and it seemed like a very decent facsimile. 
Yeah, th this is one of the most accurate depictions of a large-scale convention that I've, if, if not the most accurate that I've ever seen on film. And I love, and I, I, they sort of, they really perfectly capture the spirit of, of fan cosplay in all of its incarnations. And I love the fact that if you look in the background, there are a handful of other established characters kind of want, like, people dressed as them kind of wandering around. Yeah, I thought it was, um, it was a good setup, and it was funny because Jason Lee explains it earlier on. He's like, you know, what used to be, uh, you know, a dedicated following of uh, fans and, um, you know, uh, fans and social critics turns into this, you know, megalith type thing for all pop culture, you know, the whole BuzzFeed whatever thing, you know, that was a good summarization of, uh, of comic-con and cons in general and well, that's uh, that's the arc of san diego comic-con san diego comic-con started with 300 attendees in a hotel ballroom and a handful of comics artists including jack kirby uh who and, and who jack kirby who infamously said uh at one of the first comic cons you know this there's not it's not many of us here now but one day Hollywood is going to be here to tell us what movie they made last year and what movie they're and to find out what movie they're going to mm. make next year. And oh. it, it he was dead before it became true, but it completely came true. Oh yeah, a very very prophetic uh uh <laughs> very prophetic analysis there. It's pretty wild and um it's funny cuz on the one hand I was like it's interesting that Kevin Smith is uh, being critical of his culture cuz I feel like he was very central in kind of bringing the like, I don't want to say geek chic, but like it made it like, you know, very, uh, you know, having characters, having in-depth analysis, analytical discussions about Star Wars and Star Trek and comic books and all this stuff was like kind of his doing. And then also um, it is kind of telling that he would actually have an understandable beef with like the overblown nature of Comic-Con and that, you know, he's probably a guy that would like to just go to Comic-Con to see people like Jack Kirby, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I've been going to conventions for about 20 years. Uh, Thrasher, you've probably been going a little bit longer than I have, but even in that amount of time, they've really changed quite a bit. I mean, there used to be places you could get all kinds of uh, bootleg screenplays and videotapes and, and CDs and, uh, and fan art, and they've, they've really cleaned shop. There's a lot much less uh, bootlegs going on or, or fan product. What, what fan product you see are more kind of like Etsy pop-up shops, and even some of those are getting shut down, really. Um, well, I will say, say this. There, is, there still is a place for for screenplays and, and mm -hmm. bootleg, hard-to-find video preserving lost media, but you have to look, you have to look for the mid-level conventions. Uh, right. The mid-level conventions are where you still find that stuff and where, and, and where thankfully... It's like copyright claims are, are are difficult to enforce and more lax to begin with, and and I, I have bootleggers are doing a service. There are yeah. there are things that are only available on the bootleg circuit because no one clearly owns the thing. The rights are in dispute, or it's something no one knows how to turn a profit on, so it's just lingering in a vault somewhere. There is there is lost media that is only being preserved on the bootleg circuit. Right, and I think it's like the there's a huge difference between a bootleg and piracy. It's, um, like you said, you have things that just the distribution rights are just in limbo or just non-existent. And, you know, like I, I got a, this great, um, VHS compilation of the Toho, like outtakes and stuff like that, of oh, like, you know, cool. Godzilla freezing up and, um, you know, little 
you know, models and stuff not functioning. And I swear, I don't really have anything to base this on, but I swear that some of the footage is Kurosawa's excise footage from Tora 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 that we never saw. Mm. So, like, finding stuff like that is just, you know, so rare, so cool. And, again, something you could only get at Comic-Con. You couldn't even find it on eBay or anything like that. But, again, you see diminishing that diminishing aspect, and it's it's kind of a bummer because it's basically just how many scenes are we going to see from the next Captain America movie, you know? Yeah, and... Uh... I mean, the whole reasoning for this film taking place at Chronicon instead of Comic-Con is you don't have to go to DC and Marvel and all those people to get the rights to show those people in outfits because these are all Kevin Smith characters, Jane Silent Bob and, and right. whatnot, right? You can have as many of them running around in the background and there's no legal snafus. Yeah, exactly. I was surprised, though, that there wasn't very much chronic at the Chronicon. Well, they do, they do make those uh, those weed dealers who turns out are the two punk kids from Jay yeah. and Silent Bob Strike Back who didn't know who Morris Day in the time was, and now they run <laughs> now they run a massive a massive weed dispensary. And I also love you know that love that little that bit where they repeat Jay's rhyme about getting paid for for for, mm-hmm. deep, for you know you know you don't yeah. buy weed you sell weed that's how you get ahead. <laughs> and I, I also have to admit. I, I love that when that hot topic guy who just like keeps trying to sell Funko Pops. <laughs> I, I also love the the Jay like the Jay and Silent Bob like uh, marriage equality T-shirt. I I hope that exists. That is an awesome mm. shirt. Yeah, that was good. I like that. It it might. I mean, Kevin Smith is no stranger to merchandising his uh, his likeness on on products. So you, you have a mixture. You have so many cameos in this part of the Chronicon. Oh, it's the hall of, the of cameos. It's the wall of cameos. You mentioned the Ben Affleck stuff earlier. I like that they crash a clerk's panel, and all of a sudden they're in black and white, and and the <laughs> cast members, everyone except for Randall, noticeably. Uh, well, you know, it's it's like it's like in Pee Wee's Big Adventure when he goes through all those film shoots. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the, the exact same thing when it's Jane Silent Bob running through all the different panels and like the style of the movie changes to conform <laughs> to the panels. I almost feel like there's like um, I thought the black and white bit was a good was a good bit, but mm-hmm. um, I do feel like a little bit of it was almost a lost opportunity that like I almost would have, like would like to have seen like Jay be like you know like take a hit of a joint be like, oh man, 90s weed sucked or something like that. Um, but you know, they, I just wanted to explore it a little more, I guess. They should have, because the, there is a scene where like they see like a, there's like a panel for like the Clerks animated series and like <laughs> yeah. they're very confused yeah. looking at its PowerPoint presentation. But in all honesty, I really feel like the animated Clerks character should have somehow been there. I mean, if you've already had yeah. black oh, and white yeah. people, you might as well have like living cartoons. <laughs> Yeah, the animated clerk series was was interesting. It was Very ahead of its time, I think. Lived too, yeah. So, so we got Chris Hemsworth uh, in here. We got Dietrich Bader, uh, who was the voice of Batman on Batman: Brave and the Bold, and I think may have played Batman in a few other contexts since then. We have like the almost the entire cast of Supergirl, including uh, Melissa Benoit as the big budget movie version of Chronic. Uh, we get Brainiac Five cosplaying. As like I think he speaks in this weird way. I think he's supposed to be a Canadian cosplaying as Silent Bob, and he keeps standing up and explaining what's happening in the movie. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Smith had directed some episodes of not just Supergirl but The Flash. Oh yeah, so he was able to get them that way with that connection. Yeah. I mean, and when you see the big budget reboot of the the, the movie, I like that it 
it looks noticeably different than like the Hollywood movie of it looked in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. I really like that Tommy Chan is the butler. Alfred, yeah, he's flat his out. His name Alfred. is just Alfred, and <laughs> and and Val Kilmer is is nice. You know, it's it's too bad with the, with his health issues, he couldn't really talk, but it happened to work for this role. Yeah, like Val Kilmer's big budget uh, uh, blunt man. So the thing, so the thing that I absolutely love because like they like they they really do play up how epic the blunt man and Chronic reboot's going to be. We see like the concept art, the posters, everyone's super excited for it, and I love that what we get is exceptionally well filmed. But all it is are the characters reciting typical Kevin Smith dialogue. And the V is for vape. Yeah, the V is for vape. <laughs> Not versus. I just love Tommy Chong's like, stoners don't fight, man. It was when you're yeah. high that you have kind of a clear perspective and everything comes together. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of... If it's a stoner movie, you have to pay tribute to the likes of, of Cheech and Chong. I mean, they are like the progenitors of the stoner movie that it took kevin smith this long to get a cameo from uh either cheech or chong was quite surprising yeah when you think about it right you, you think it would have happened by now but no that's a great great moment and um oh wait it, we actually we i think we do need to talk about like the see most, kevin oh what might be the most delightful yes. cameo so early on sure. jay talks about how like his favorite movie is how high with oh Red yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which right. i saw in the theaters opening weekend um okay. but but what i absolutely love is like when after they take the edibles they have a vision and the vision is red man and method man mm -hmm. kind of explaining fatherhood to them like hey man anybody yeah. can be a father take somebody special to be a dad and like and it's it's just it's really great. Stop talking about jizzing everywhere. That is unseemly. <laughs> uh, and and I, it's great. And it also makes me realize because okay, so how how high? It's not that good of a movie, and yet Redman and Method Man are amazing in it. They have oh, great yeah. comic timing, and they have great chemistry together. I wish we lived in a universe where Redman and Method Man did a series of road pictures because they would be perfect. In that kind of movie, it would be a, it would almost be like the old like studio like going to Cairo, you know, like old Hollywood road movies, but just with Meth Man, Red Man, which would be great. And it was I did think it was a good um, reference where you know Jay's like, oh, like you inspired us, and then like Meth Man, Red Man, like, oh, like we're here because of you. And that was it almost felt uh, it was a good reference, and um, it was also good because like you said, like How High isn't a great movie, but I remember we used to watch the shit out of that one when we were teenagers and like to this day if i see like a friend of mine you know i'll say like god blunt got weed it's you know endlessly um lots of references and quotes there on that one so that was that was a lot that was a fun cameo uh turn there i thought that was great ohio was in comedy central a lot in the 90s <laughs> oh all yeah the time that and pcu it seemed like were the only movies PCU. <laughs> they showed well, remember, remember when HBO used to stand for Hots and Beastmaster only? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that was a big one on there, and all sorts of God, they had all that stuff on it used to be on HBO. It takes me back. Uh, but we end on a but, huge action set piece when uh, when Sean Yu reveals herself to be a Russian spy who's going to assassinate Kevin Smith to, I guess, to dispirit America uh, and. And all the cockknocker henchmen turn out to be real henchmen. And I love this is a this is a fun detail, but I don't know if this is to be cheap or if this is very intentional. But all their masks 
are repainted Slade Wilson masks from the TV mm. show Arrow. Ah. It's the same ones that his henchmen use. Uh, like the exact same ones, but uh, you know, and then you know, Bob comes in in a Iron Man suit built from scrap metal in a junkyard, <laughs> and he even <laughs> has a heads-up display. Uh, you know, Jay and his daughter fight back to back. You know, Sopapia defeats the spy because she's immune to the sonic attack. It's a great huge action set piece, and I kind of like the way they get out with it, where they get out of it, where. Uh, where Kevin Smith's like, wow, this is amazing. This this is the perfect time for the emotional denouement, which I would probably insert into the movie by gently fading into a quiet scene. And then as he's talking, it fades into Jay and his daughter out in front of the quick stop, just kind of talking. Yeah, that was that was good. I like that a lot. And um, it's a good set piece. And I again, to back to Kevin Smith's mime acting, when he's in the, the iron suit with the... Um, the LED display or whatever you have it. He just looks like so like, so gleefully happy that he's doing his like little junior Iron Man thing. <laughs> and it's, it is great. And, and so it just ends in this nice emotional moment where he and his daughters are really connected and they're, they're both learning from each other. Uh, they, they're enjoying their coffee. And of course, Dante comes up again and it's just this great little throwaway line. Okay, check it out for the past, for the past 30 years. We've been coming here early every morning and putting gum in his lock, which is a completely unnecessary, but it it sort of ties a bow on the entire view of Oh, yeah, because that was like the whole gag with clerks was, you know, a bunch of savages in this town. <laughs> and then, of course, the credits start and we get all the deleted and alternate scenes, including yeah. including all the top Kickstarter backers getting their cameo. <laughs> In the movie, in the credits. <laughs> what do you uh, think about the brief Stan Lee bit they show? On the okay, credits? so that clearly, if Stan Lee had been alive at the time this movie was being filmed, they would have filmed a cameo for him. I don't see how that couldn't have happened. Oh, yeah. I almost teared up a bit when there's that, that's because, you know, Stan Lee is all over the comic book scene earlier in the movie, but seeing him being interviewed by Kevin Smith and Kevin Smith explaining, well, we're making the Jay and Silent Bob like reboot. You're, we're going to, you're going to be in it. Let's rehearse your, let's rehearse your cameo. And then gives him a line. And Stan Lee's like, you're supposed to say the line. He's like, yeah, but I'm <laughs> silent. Bob, I, that was, that was, Oh, you're silent. Thing. That's the joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's it it's Stan so it's Stan Lee being Stan Lee. I, I did I did kind of tear up a little bit. Uh, it's 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 nice seeing that wily old self promoting bastard one last time. <laughs> and I, I listened to that commentary, and apparently at the end where it's all Kevin Smith is the director of uh, the reboot movie, it was meant to be Stan Lee as the director. Or... Yes. Huh. Oh, okay. That Which I don't know if Stanley would have been in good enough shape to do that, unfortunately. But that would have yeah. been because uh, Kevin Smith had a cameo of Stanley way back in Mallrats. So yeah, not just a cameo; like he gives a whole speech. That's right. You're right. Yeah, it's like the Wolfman Jack in American Graffiti scene. I know that was great, um, and that was back when you had to like like nudge somebody like that Stanley. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, that was really sweet though. But yeah, like Thrasher, you said that was a very emotional moment there because I was like, I, I I was waiting for. It. I was like, I gotta see him here somewhere. If there's either gonna be a tribute or you know some old footage they'll rehash or something like that. But that was that was very sweet. And I just love that he's like, oh, you're silent, Bob. You know, <laughs> he's like, get me Jason Mewes. That was that was cute. I mean, yeah. So so overall, I would. 
I would give this a sequel, yes. I think, you know, there's a, interesting enough things in here, like, but you really need to see the other movies before watching this one. There's so many references. I think you would be a little bit lost, even more so than if you saw Jane Silent Bob Strike Back without seeing uh, the older films. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I would... I, I would, this is a perfect way to end the whole series, but I do I do give it a sequel. Yes, this this was this was well this was this was well worth seeing. Now this is as a caveat. I am somebody who who has a history with with Kevin Smith's films, but this this is a good high to go out on. Uh, it's it's kind of the it's it's a very Kevin Smith film, but it does all the best things a Kevin Smith film does. Yeah, definitely. Uh, sequel, yes, as well. I Like I said, I was reluctant at first, um, but I totally um, changed my tune as the movie got going. It's very thoroughly a Kevin Smith film, and I thought it, contem- it contemporized his work in a very uh, clever and witty way, which is which is what he does best. So like, it's, like you were saying, it's a really good wraparound for the Askewiverse, and um, yeah, I actually had a pretty good time watching it. It made me think of how, you know, it, it seems like over the careers of directors, they get stuck in a certain genre, and then they want to branch out, and those branching out things don't do as well, and then they sort of... They're called a Jersey back. Girl. Uh, yeah, like Jersey Girl, or like uh, Red State and Tusk I actually like, but they... they the Red uh, State was amazing. Yeah, I like Red State. Well, it's like a legitimately like a good movie. It was definitely um, a bit different. Um, but but anyhow, yeah, I mean, that, that he went back to these characters, I thought was was fun on the commentary he even teases that he wants to do a third one in about 20 years that'll be about the children of millennium falcon uh so who knows whether we'll want to see uh jane silent bob in their 60s hey why not we'll have to see why not sure (laughs) they can just do uh less act i mean if the expendables can do it why can't jane silent bob (laughs) less steroids Yep. Uh, let's do. My cat is beating up my door. Just a minute. Uh, why don't you start pitch a sequel, Thrasher? All right. Well, if I'm if I'm going to pitch a sequel, I just this this ties such a perfect little bow on the movie. So I'm gonna I'm gonna run with the idea that the next movie is going to take place in the future. But we're we're going to assume it's going to be filmed like within the next year or two. So nice. it's going to be roughly 20 years in the future. Uh, Jay is on his deathbed. Uh, he finally smoked a joint so good that it's gonna that it's gonna stop his heart. Uh, and in fact, that's even the ticking clock as we see him with his joint. And every time we cut to him, it's burned down a little bit more. And you know he's going to die when it gets down to the bottom. Um, and because it's filmed now, but set 20 years in the future, it's this weird overblown future where there will arbitrarily be flying cars and cyborgs and clones and whatnot. Uh, and in fact, that's going to be why that's going to be why Silent Bob hasn't aged at all. He managed to get a clone body and transferred his brain into it. So it turns out that in uh, it turns out that in the events of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Jay and Silent Bob accidentally entered uh, accidentally joined the Writers Guild of America. So it turns <laughs> out even though they did sell the sell their names to Saban Films, uh, which is now uh, sort of a bit as big as Disney in this future. They have a streaming app called Saban Plus. They have a Saban Land amusement park. They're, in fact, fighting a guerrilla war with Disney over the control of Celebration Florida. Um, 
So it turns out because they were in the Writers Guild before they signed that paper, they are still owed character payments for the characters of Jay and Silent Bob, who are now a huge franchise. Uh, and uh, Jay can be saved with all that money. They just got to go to Hollywood and collect the characters and collect the character fee. So Silent Bob, uh, Sopapia, and Millennium, they go on a road trip. Uh, they go on a road, road trip to Hollywood. The thing is, it's like a Mad Max Fury Road style road trip. They're being chased <laughs> by they're being chased by uh, psychotic fans who like the reboot better than the original and don't want to see and don't want to see original Jay and Silent Bob come back for one last ride. So they're pursuing them and trying to kill them with weaponized merchandise. Uh, but they finally <laughs> they finally get to Hollywood. Uh, they know they finally collect all this money. Jay and Silent Bob are, are rich. They get back they get back to Jay, and then it turns out it's all a misunderstanding. No man. You can't overdose on weed. That's fucking impossible, dude. <laughs> it, tur- it turns out, you know, he's not a- he's not actually going to die. That was just all the mis- uh, miscommunication. He's just the super stoned. <laughs> so they all they all get high on their giant pile of money. That sounds amazing. I would watch the ever loving shit out of that. Jay and, si- Jay and Silent Bob three boot. That's what we'll call that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see, I guess mine would be, so you have the end of this film and with the emotional connection, and Silent Bob and uh, Jay would wake up one morning, bonk their heads, all of a sudden it is Jay who is silent, and Silent <laughs> Bob is the one that can speak. And yet you have sort of this, uh, it's not that they switch bodies, but it's more about, you see, the struggle of Jay, a man that's very verbal, it always has to make his opinion known, can't speak, and it would turn out to be kind of a, a tragedy at the end because now he just knows he has a daughter. He wants to have a relationship with her, but he can't speak to her. So it would be called uh, Silent J and Bob, or it would be called Bob and Silent J. <laughs> it's a Freaky Friday scenario. Yep, pretty much. Excellent. Excellent. All right, so my pitch a sequel would be, um, turns out that after the, um, after the whole uh, assassination attempt at Kevin Smith, there's some rogue elements in the uh, faction that um, Millennium's Falcon ran with, and they end up, kid- they end up being uh, Tibetan separatists who kidnap Millennium Falcon, and it's up to, of course, uh, Jay and Silent Bomb to reclaim her and pay the ransom. Um, in it though, it's a, you know, so we have another adventure movie, uh, road movie setup where they are jet setting across Asia and through it, they have layovers in Japan where they run afoul of the Yakuza and come under the hammer of Japan's very harsh drug laws. Um, then they end up in, uh, China and then Tibet. And, um, what happens is that they try to attain Nirvana through their mixture of, um, massive marijuana ingestion. And, um, of course, you have the juxtaposition of, you know, uh, Tibetan monks and Blunt Man and Chronic, or, I mean, Jay and Silent Bob, which is just a a backdrop for a modicum of comedic hijinks. And it turns out, after they rescue um, Millennium Falcon, they realize that in China there's a whole knockoff series, a Hong Kong knockoff series of Blunt Man and Chronic called um, Chronic Joint Hero and Weed Fighter. And there, <laughs> the Wucha series. 
So Sammo Hung is going to be in it as like uh, as <laughs> yeah, uh, Silent Bob, the as Silent Bob equivalent, joint hero and chronic fighter. <laughs> It'd be Sammo Hung, and I would go. Um, okay, let's just be simple. Say Donnie Yen as a uh, <laughs> Jay. I like this. And it's called uh, Wagon Z's Jay and Silent Bob and the Tibetan Adventure. <laughs> Very good. So now on to uh, what you're watching. I watched a movie. I've been meaning to see in the theater. didn't get a chance to because I was moving into a house. And uh, it ended up uh, on, on rental earlier than was expected because of the uh, COVID-19 I'm talking about Birds of Prey and the Fabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn, uh, directed by Kathy Ann, written by Christina Hodson. Um, you know, so I'm not really terribly familiar with the Birds of Prey characters, other than they had a series in the late 90s that lasted for one season, and uh, that was live action. And from the trailers, I thought, well, this is going to be about the team, but really it's not. It's more about Harley Quinn for most of the movie, and the team kind of gets formed uh, pretty late in the film. Um, Ewan McGregor's in it as a bad guy. It's good. It's definitely rated R. It has, uh, you know, the language and violence are, are up there. Um, there's a lot of good scenes involving an egg sandwich. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard about this infamous sandwich. It's, it's not only that, the egg sandwich gets paid off in the third act. I can't believe I'm saying that, but they, nice. <laughs> they the egg sandwich gets, uh, some, some develop, I wouldn't say character development, but, uh, it gets a payoff of sorts. And, I thought, you know, this was a fun film, kind of breezy film. I like that it wasn't tied in as deep to the other um, movies as much. And uh, Thrasher and I were talking about this before we started recording. But they mentioned the Joker, but you don't see an actor playing the Joker. And, and uh, a lot of the beginning of it is animated, um, which kind of gets through a lot of some of the exposition of uh, her origin story gets out of the way pretty quickly. So yeah, I, I think I think it's fun. You know, it's trying to do like a, a female Deadpool kind of thing, but not quite as third wall breaking. Um, but it, but it's uh, it's along those lines. It, it it does make me wonder if they're going to do a a PG thirteen cut of this or something. But we'd have to cut out quite a lot of the dialogue. Mm. Uh, and and Rosie Perez is in this, which was nice. I was not Ooh, expecting that. Rosie Perez. As a, yeah, well, was it was it really Rosie Perez or was it Ro the Rosie Perez robot? It was really Rosie Perez, not the robot. So, uh, um, it seemed like it was much of like, uh, was it like an apology for Suicide Squad or? It's so different from, I mean, Suicide Squad was a lot visually a lot darker. And the one thing they do carry over from Suicide Squad is there's a running gag. All these people have a vendetta against Harley Quinn because, you know, she was, uh, did a lot of bad things, but because she, had the Joker as a boyfriend that protected her in a way, right? Right. But then when when the the breakup is is for real, uh, which happens in this show, she becomes just a target. So whenever like someone is going after her, it'll freeze frame, kind of draw cartoon features on the person's faces and say why they have a vendetta. And uh, that kind uh, of movie trailer style font is a bit like Suicide Squad. But other than that, it doesn't maybe from a line of dialogue or two might reference the Joker pushing her out of the helicopter or something, but yeah, it's very loosely tied in. Uh, Harley Quinn's going to be in the next Suicide Squad movie uh, directed and written by James Gunn called The Suicide Squad, which is kind of confusing, but okay. 
I don't know if that's a reboot or uh, or, or what what have you. Supposedly, based on some some tweets from James Gunn and some just information floating around uh, floating around the entertainment news, uh, it it is a straight up sequel. Like the the original really? Suicide okay. Squad is for all intents and purposes canon as far as the background <laughs> of this new movie is. Oh boy! Just with DC, you know, they came to the party late trying to do their big shared universe thing and, and they saw how Marvel did it and Marvel made a lot of money. And you think, well, wouldn't you just copy Marvel? Wouldn't that be the, the standard thing? Instead they had to screw it up in such a way. Uh, oh, I don't yeah. know. Well, I feel like in all honesty, I feel like the best thing they can do, and this is what happened with Wonder Woman, Joker and Harley Quinn is they mm-hmm. should just, they should just let the filmmaker take some of their toys out of the DC toy box and just run right, with whatever yeah. crazy idea they had. And if it sticks, Maybe you can get some sequels out of it, and maybe you could eventually do a crossover. It, it's it's whenever they've tried to make a big blockbuster that they failed, but whenever they've let somebody pursue a wild hair, uh, it's made it's made if not a good movie, at least a very interesting movie. Yeah, I was uh, I thought it was interesting that with I um, I'm not sure I'm not too um, well read in the the Harley Quinn um, Joker narrative. But I was wondering, I was surprised that it almost wasn't like uh, the way you have like Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman and Batman Returns, is that you don't have like it starts with the Harley Quinn before she's Harley Quinn, you know what I mean? And that through like, it's a surprise halfway through, like, whoa, there she is, you know, you see her form or something like that, whereas... Um, did that happen in Suicide Squad? I didn't see. No, in, not In Suicide really. Squad, there's a flashback to Harley Quinn's origin, but it's the... It's the sec... It's... So, the animated series... Harley Quinn has two origin stories. I honestly okay. prefer the original origin story because in the original origin story, she makes choices and those choices okay. lead her to becoming the Harley, the Harley Quinn. But in the second origin story, she doesn't make all those choices. And in the end, she gets an overdose of Joker toxin that just <laughs> kind of makes her crazy rather than yeah. making choices and going down that path. And I find that less satisfying. And that's, yeah. that's the origin story we get. She falls into a, she falls into a big old vat and becomes oh, a, super, a super villain. <laughs> so, I mean, if you see, uh, I think it's in season four of Batman, the animated series, there's an episode called mad love. Um, uh, yes, based on the comic, uh, the graphic novel of the mm-hmm. same name, that which, 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 tell, which tells the origin story pretty well, I think. Well, it not only it not only tells the complete origin story, but it establishes her as a villain who can operate independently and can go can go scheme for scheme with the with and against the Joker. But it also removes any it, it it also denies you the ability to romanticize their relationship because that is the story that flat out states. No, this isn't like true love. This is an abusive relationship that you've been chuckling at all these years. Right. Um, yeah, I have to check that out. I've I've been curious about it because uh, it looks interesting, and I just think Margot Robbie's great. So. Yeah, it's fun. She was a producer on it. It's it's poppy. I, I'd uh, I'd recommend it. You know, it's not not as snarky as I thought. Um, like Deadpool two, a lot of it revolves around a kid, which sort of surprised me, but. Um, there you go. Uh, Alex, what's something you've been watching? Um, we got the Arrow release of the, the Ringu series. Oh, so, okay. Yep. And that includes Spiral in that, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. Which is, these movies are far out. I mean, Ringu, you know, we had the VHS and the, you know, old DVD of it. Um, these restorations look incredible. 
Um, so we just wrapped it up with uh, Ringu Zero, or Ringuo, as I like to call it. Um, not a super strong film, but with these Japanese horror series, the even the lesser sequels are still really cool, and they really retain that creepy atmosphere of the of the series. You know, they don't really go off the rails like so many a lot of uh, a lot of American horror film sequels go. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun to revisit the early ones and the the sequels and um, uh, Rosin or Spiral. It was it's crazy. There's a lot going on in that movie, and I think I need to rewatch it because they throw so much uh, uh, unexpected curveballs at you. Um, a lot of cool features. Um, if you can pony up the money, I would definitely suggest uh, getting that set. It's really cool. And Thrasher. All right, so uh, along the same lines as uh, uh, Birds of Prey, I saw another. Uh, I saw another uh, movie about killers in love. Uh, so I saw. Uh, nine, I saw twenty fifteen's uh, Mister Right. Uh, oh, written, okay. which you know, I I just noticed written by Max Landis. I mm-hmm. should have guessed that when I watched it. Uh, now it makes a lot a lot more sense. But anyway, it's it's a romantic comedy. Uh, it's a romantic comedy uh, about a young woman uh, played by Anna Kendrick and an assassin played by Sam Rockwell who fall in love. Uh, and it, it has it has a lot of a lot of Deadpool energy. The fight choreography is is really good. The violence has some real consequences. Um, there, there's a there's a little bit there's a little bit too much banter. But the one thing I like about it is that is that the relationship between the two really does work. Where they're both people that have kind of a somewhat sick, sarcastic sense of humor, and they're they really complement each other on screen. And, and the, the short, the short version is he, he's a hitman, but he has a, he's an assassin, but he has a moral code. Uh, you hire him to kill somebody. He goes away, then comes back a few days later and kills whoever hired him because they're bad people. Cause they're willing to pay other people to kill for them. <laughs> so that's kind of like, that's kind of what kind of that, that in a sense of humor, kind of what make him uh, sympathetic. And, they just kind of bump into each other. Uh, they each have an attraction to each other, start start dating. Uh, and all of these government agents keep trying to arrest him or kill him or capture him. Like, and so he's having to run out on dates to deal with them. Uh, and he keep and, and he never lies about his, oh, I just had to strangle a guy to death in the parking lot. And she thinks he's just telling a joke. But then finds out that all that stuff has really been happening. <laughs> um, and the and the end and one so Max Max language. I'll be diplomatic and say Max Landis is a complicated filmmaker, a land of contradictions. <laughs> yes, the, and so your your mileage is definitely going to vary on this movie based on your tolerance for Max Landis bullshit. That yeah. being said, this movie does something that I almost never see in action movies, which is, uh, which which is that Sam Rockwell's assassin doesn't face off against the movie's big bad. Anna Kendrick faces off against the movie's big bad and defeats him. Nice. All right. And you never see that in movies. Whenever there's a romantic interest in an action movie that gets the ability to fight, they always create a glorified woman henchman for her to fight against. Right. But this yeah, movie but... doesn't do that. She fought, she faces off against the big bad and she wins. And it's, and it is a legitimately triumphant moment. Nice. I, I love I, Anna Kendrick. She can hold her own, definitely. Yeah. So, so 
if what I've described sounds at all interesting to you, def- watch the movie. You'll you'll probably enjoy it. If you enjoy the Deadpool movies, I think you'll probably uh, enjoy this. That being said, if you have a low tolerance for Max Landis, you can definitely skip it. You're not missing a great film. <laughs> yeah, definitely have a low tolerance for Max Landis. But I am I gotta say I am looking at it right now, and I'm very I am very curious. Um, and I do love Sam Rockwell, and like I said, Anna Kendrick's I I think she's great. Um, uh. A Simple Favor, I thought, was really, really fun film from 2018. Oh, and RZA plays a character called Shotgun Steve. Nice. Who, who starts out as a henchman, but, like, has his own complex inner life. I would totally <laughs> see a Shotgun Steve movie. That's awesome. Yeah, I think the only Max Landis stuff I've seen was American Ultra and uh, the, um, oh, what the hell is that called? Not Young Frank, uh, Victor Frankenstein. Yeah, I remember Victor Frankenstein. Bright was just yeah. Um, Chronicle too was kind of not so up my alley. Um, and then it turns out that Max Landis is a not a good dude. Um, yeah, that, that is also a factor. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Uh, and he's uh, I think now he's a consultant. Maybe I'm not sure what he's been up to. The last yeah. thing he he was uh, a showrunner and, and writer on uh, the Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency uh, show on BBC. Um, I think uh, I believe I had the pro, uh, the pleasure of writing about Bright for Battleship Pretensions bottom ten of twenty seventeen list. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, so that was uh, that was great. That can be fun. Um, so we are. Uh, next week on uh, Sequel Cast 2, we'll be talking about uh, starting a new trilogy of films suggested by Thrasher, the Lilo and Stitch movies. Which, strangely enough, this came at the perfect time because suddenly everybody's talking about Lilo and Stitch again. You want to talk about that real quick, Thrasher? Um, no, just, just that a, per- a person uh, had made a comment about how they didn't like Lilo and Stitch and had posted a blog post about it, and that blog post has garnered a lot of attention. Hmm. Uh and but beyond that, you know, we're, we're going to share our own opinions of the film, and I'm and I'm sure we're going to look at look at it with with fresh eyes. But you know, I'm sure I'm sure if you if you're interested in in this whole Lilo and Stitch conversation, I'm sure you already know about it, and I'm sure you've already read the blog post. Excellent. So, which of the Lilo and Stitch movies are we covering, Thrasher? Because I'm a little bit confused looking at. The TV series and all these other things. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna skip the TV series. Uh, I was gonna be right. uh, if I remember correctly, it's Lilo and Stitch, Lilo and Stitch Two, Stitch has a glitch, and okay. Leroy and Stitch. Yep, sounds good. <laughs> Great. If I discover that there's some other movies in there, we'll 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 discuss that. <laughs> <laughs> there's one called Stitch the Movie, but I don't know if that's a TV thing or that might be a spinoff. Huh. Could be. Okay. Anyway, cool. Yep, we'll be talking about that next time. You can follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. You can follow me on Twitter um, at CrabNebula1914. So for Sequel Cast uh, 2, this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. This is Alex. And crap, we didn't do the sequel scene. Well, we, uh, I guess we oh. still could. I didn't find any like th- good three-way dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of did it earlier, didn't you, when you read that quote? Well, yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I did. That was a difference. Okay, so well, that... if we're, we're going to end it on anything, I'll, we'll end it on this. Hi, remember me? I'm Loki, the angel of death from Dogma. Now, if your kids are looking at you right now like, that's not Tom Hiddleston, just tell them I was Loki in the 90s before it was cool. <laughs>
Yeah, that was a very. I was kind of hoping he'd narrate the rest of the film, really, after that. Yeah. Film, I thought. <laughs> but that he he wore the same outfit. He's in the church. It's uh, you get to hear his backstory. I thought it was sort of fun. And the reborn identity. That's, that's oh, clever. God. Oh, then he does that whole pun celebration. Oh, yeah. God.